This is the CJSR edition, a program that explores high and low culture through the power of sound. A few weeks ago, the production team here at CJSR FM 88.5 teamed up with more than 30 community radio stations from across the country to create 14 hours of spoken word programming aimed at amplifying the voices of Canadians of all stripes who are struggling with poverty and homelessness. Over the course of those 14 hours, one thing became abundantly clear to me. Homelessness is a complex, intertwined issue without any clear solution. Perhaps there isn't even a solution at all. But with more than 30,000 people visiting homelessness shelters every day in this country, one thing is for certain. We have an obligation to at least try to find a solution to this national epidemic. So on this week's episode of the CJSR edition, broadcasting from 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, three radio stories about people attempting to wrap their heads around the complex problem of homelessness and then doing their part in large and small ways to lend a helping hand to their fellow Canadians so that they can have the opportunity to find a place to sleep at night. This is the CJSR edition. I'm your host, Matt Hergy. Stay with us. have a rising problem with homelessness. Um, All levels of government are starting to put a lot more effort into it, and that's appreciated. I'd like you to meet my first guest. Linda Duncan is the Member of Parliament for Edmonton Strathcona. Since she was elected to the House of Commons in 2008 as a new Democrat, she has represented a tiny blip of orange in a sea of conservative blue in Alberta. She has been a tireless advocate for progressive, social, and environmental justice in this country for a number of years. In addition to her tenure as a member of parliament, Duncan spent several years on the Sierra Legal Defense Fund's board of directors. Now, prior to the NCRA's National Homelessness Awareness Radio Marathon, Duncan came into the CJSR studios to offer her perspective on the issues surrounding poverty and homelessness in this country. While the latter part of our conversation focused on more holistic solutions to these issues, our conversation started by talking about the systemic causes of homelessness and poverty in Alberta. Alberta does have a homelessness issue. Everybody thinks it's the land of hope and glory and streets paved with gold. And so as a result, everybody comes here. So many people are coming here because they think Alberta is a place to get a job. So we have people coming from Eastern Canada. Uh, We have a lot of immigrants who now want to uh, come to Alberta. And then we have increasing number of uh, Aboriginals coming into the city. So, well, I think that we are starting to, I think they've taken a thousand people maybe off the streets. There's still more than a thousand 
still on the streets. A good proportion of those are children and youth. Um, you know, we've got families that are homeless. Um, from what I'm hearing from organizations who work with homeless all, all the time, they're saying that what we're not doing is we're not even counting properly because a lot of people are couch surfing or they are getting involved in probably not necessarily the best of situations just so they can have a roof over their heads. You're probably aware that our party for quite some time have been pushing for a national housing strategy and we keep tabling it and the Conservatives keep rejecting it and we'll just keep at it. It's one thing for the government to promote and say, yes, we have to support the economy of Alberta because that's what's keeping the federal coffers filled. Well, that's fine then. Well, then we need more support here because Alberta and Edmonton in particular, I think, is dealing with a lot of this influx of people who um, would like to have an opportunity but may get lost in the shuffle. There's this big issue of it's not just the unemployed, it's the underemployed. So what we've got is a whole lot of people, some in Alberta, but certainly a lot in other parts of Canada, um, where they're scrambling and taking two or three not well-paid jobs, no benefits, and just struggling to get by. And so that makes it really hard for them to, to cover housing. Um, then we've got this whole problem across Canada about mental health that is not being addressed. And uh, <clears throat> some people end up on the streets because they have a mental health, pro mental health problems. Uh, if you're on the streets long enough, you're probably gonna develop some mental health problems. We need to be giving more attention to how we're housing people and the accessibility. Uh, when we talk about the homeless, people just think, oh, it's somebody on the, on the street. But homelessness is a big issue for a lot of people. I know a couple of years ago, uh, there were some people living in trailers down in the ravines in Edmonton because they moved here, they were working, but they couldn't find any affordable housing. So I think that's an important aspect of our economy. Um, you should be able to earn a living wage, which means that you should be able to afford the housing, but we do need to have some government intervention. Governments do have powers, and uh, certainly our federal government does have the power and the mandate to bring together all the jurisdictions, the First Nation governments, the territories, the provinces, municipalities, get a dialogue going, let's have a national strategy. Then we can figure out the best way to feed in uh, the supports. The way I read what you're saying is that a lot of the issues that lead to homelessness are sort of systemic and intertwined. And then not to mention those instances of racism and discrimination and ageism that sort of perpetuate that problem. So then what is the path forward? Um, need people to write to their uh, governments, mm. right? You got a situation where you got a majority government in Ottawa they don't give a lot of credence to us, the opposition, that doesn't stop us for calling for appropriate policies. But it's the electorate, it's our youth who can speak out and uh, write. And I encourage all your listeners to be expressing uh, their opinion. If they think everybody should have access to reasonable, safe housing, 
then they should demand that the, that the federal government step up to the plate and play its role. And the federal government has that mandate as the leader of the nation to bring everybody together. Well, you sum it up is either pay now or you pay later. Mm. Um, I heard a fantastic presentation by Cindy Blackstock. Um, to There's a committee that's been meeting talking about missing and murdered Aboriginal women. And uh, most of the discussion is always about, okay, more money into criminal law and investigation and so forth. And she said the solution is, is to invest in our children. And she said there's been experiments in the United States where they've put more money up front um, to make sure access to education and childcare and health supports and so forth. And it reduced the cost on policing and on, on dealing with drug addiction and homelessness and so forth. So if we provide these supports up front, right, affordable child care, every child gets looked after properly, every child gets access to uh, um, equivalent opportunity education, everybody has reasonable access to safe, uh, comfortable housing, people are going to become better contributors to the economy and to society. And if we don't enact proper policy, we pay, we pay later. <coughs> we pay later. Um, either through uh, people's mental health breakdown or they're just simply not contributing. And you got to remember, too, a lot of these people become homeless have abandoned families. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that get left in the wake and, and then are struggling. Um, just need to make uh, opportunities more equitable. That was an excerpt of my conversation with Member of Parliament for Edmonton Strathcona, Linda Duncan. If you'd like to hear the extended interview, head over to our show notes at cjsrnews.com slash edition. You're listening to the CJSR Edition, a program that explores high and low culture through interviews, documentaries, and sound. Stay with us. Stop for a moment to have an honest conversation with a person experiencing homelessness. If you spend just 20 minutes with that person to really get to know them, what could you learn about the struggles that he faces on the streets trying to piece his life together? Might that conversation help you to understand the complexities of homelessness in our country? A few weeks ago, CJSR's Karen Frazier spent a weekend immersed in Edmonton's inner city to try and figure out the answers to those questions. Here is her diary of that experience. A few
few weeks ago, I was given the opportunity to see Edmonton through the eyes of somebody who lives on its streets every day. Over the course of one weekend in February, nine University of Alberta students, myself included, spent time on the streets, at the drop-ins, and in the meal lines of Edmonton's inner city. Organized by the Mustard Seed, the program I participated in is called Alternative Reading Week. The experience intended to give students the chance to better understand the trials and challenges that our city's most marginalized and vulnerable populations face every day as they attempt to survive on the streets of Edmonton and piece their lives together. I was drawn to participate in this experience because I wanted to feel more comfortable downtown and get to know more of the resources we have in our city. My public transit route to the U of A brings me immediately outside the Stanley A. Milner Library in downtown Edmonton. The library itself and the bus stop certainly attract a wide spectrum of people, and I have often felt uneasy when someone approaches me for something. It's not always for money. Sometimes it's for a handshake or a smile. But I usually feel like I need to provide something, and I don't quite know what. And when the bus comes, I take it, leaving a conversation half finished. I felt compelled to explore more about these people's stories. Alternative Reading Week was an opportunity to not only hear these people's stories, but to live them. That was eye-opening, to say the least. My name is Karen Fraser, and this is my experience at Alternative Reading Week. As you enter through the doors, you're confronted by a cacophony of sound. Raised voices, interrogations thrown back and forth across the room. People of all different ages and ethnicities chatting with each other. Some people were sitting in silence. Other people confronted one another. Nothing too violent, just not anything that I was used to. I felt pretty obvious at first, didn't feel welcomed, didn't feel like I should be either. There was major ice. And in general, I'm on the introverted side, so I find it difficult to make conversation with anyone. It's February 14th, 2014. Today we got set up in the house that's right next door to the Mustard Seed Church. And we, uh, we went to the drop-in meal and we initially just took a tour of the place and found out what was there and learned a bit about the food bank campers and the mustard seed history and uh, and then we just jumped right in we it was kind of like a high school cafeteria, actually, at first, um, down on the main floor with all the tables and chairs, and we were just told to sit somewhere and start talking to anyone, and uh, it, it felt intimidating at first, for sure, 
and I just uh, sat down across from a man. He had medium-length graying hair, slicked back, and he was playing cards. He was playing solitaire. And at first, no talk happened, and I wasn't quite ready to engage, I don't think. And I just wanted to observe for a bit. So I looked around a lot, just kind of checking out what's going on and asked a dumb question like, oh, you're playing solitaire. It's pretty obvious. And then, yeah, I think we, we ended up connecting more than I expected. Eventually, the solitaire playing man commented on my above average height, a topic that has been a logical and comfortable start to countless other conversations I've had. We moved on to talking about favorite meals he's had at the Mustard Seed, his experiences living in the Salvation Army men's shelter, and some of the friends he runs into at the drop-in. I didn't get much of a sense of his personal history, but that was okay. I've come to understand that conversations over the weekend were guided by what someone was willing to reveal. February 14th, 2014. So we had a group discussion after tonight, and some of the things we initially talked about were some of the questions that we first think of asking people who are homeless or in insecure housing situations. And um, we got talking about one of our first questions we would ask would be, what do you do? And that's certainly one of the questions that seems to define who we are and provides a sense of identity. And a number of us, including me, I felt that uh, that wasn't really a question to begin with when potentially these people aren't really doing anything um, in the professional world right now. So having to rethink these questions. Uh, we talked about poverty being not just a lack of money. There's a culture of poverty and it's the way people are in, encultured and grown, growing up in a certain environment and who are their role models and well, who do they model themselves after and what's their behavior like and it, um, it all contributes to a loss and uh, a loss of something a loss of a sense of place in society. Something that many of us noticed was that the mustard seed is not just a place to meet your physical needs, like eating, but it's a place to come and socialize. And potentially if you are eating alone most nights of the week, it's really nice to eat with other people sometimes. And I can definitely relate to that. Something that we talked about as well was the if if uh, someone does have a place to stay, they're not necessarily able to bring others over. 
and actually the man I was talking to first tonight, he staying in the Salvation Army, and he has a quiet room, concrete walls. He says it's not noisy at all, which is great, but he can't bring anyone over. And no female friends, no male friends. And uh, that's actually one of the most important things about having your own place, is being able to host and invite people. And uh, and not having that is uh, is certainly kind of, it's a loss. On Saturday afternoon, we hung out at the Boyle Street drop-in for an hour or so. That was where I met an Aboriginal man who had recently lost his wife. The range of emotions he expressed in a few minutes seemed to be reflective of the feelings in the whole room. Some voices were loud and discordant, others soft and gentle, and happiness seemed to come and go as quickly as the fits of aggression. This man approached our group of three with a smile on his face, asking our names. He started talking about his late wife. With the same grin on his face, he pulled out a photograph of one of his kids as a baby, the only photograph he had of the child, who was now much older. I felt relieved to be having a conversation that felt meaningful. I also felt honored that he was sharing some of his life story with us but he became overwhelmed with sadness for a few moments and dropped his head to his forearms in tears. I was surprised at his vulnerability. It also opened my eyes to poverty as a culture with more factors affecting it than simply a lack of money. I think one of the things that maybe I was most surprised about was that I just, I felt honored that people were talking to me from the community. And uh, I did feel like an outsider, but was really appreciative when I was in conversation with these very interesting people who all have very unique stories. And I just appreciated talking to them and that they were taking interest in me and also that they were listening and and yet I was listening too that was mostly what I was there for one of the stories that really struck me tonight that one of our leaders told us was about a young man who showed up to the mustard seed numerous times and he never changed his clothing, was always quite unclean, and he, um, of course there were resources available to him, he could go and have a shower and get clean for a night, and then be clean for a day, but he said that, uh, that just wasn't worth it. Really, why get clean when you're just gonna wake up and face the same thing the next day? And so when finally he felt ready to sort of move on or move away from being homeless, um, I guess he 
sort of made that statement by saying he was finally ready to change his pants and yeah that really hit me as uh, something that is so important Closer to the end of the weekend, I sat down with Sarah, one of the facilitators at Alternative Reading Week. It was a chance to decompress after an event-filled weekend, to reflect and take stock. Okay. Yeah, today is February 16th, 2014. So yesterday, Karen, you and um, five members of your group, so you split into, into groups of five, spent the day on the streets of inner-city Edmonton, so you spent eight hours outside with no money, no food, um, very little direction. What would you say was one of the most challenging parts of your day? I think for me, actually, was um, being kind of extroverted all day and, and not having a space to go back to and just reflect for a bit because, um, yeah, I don't, I don't really talk to that many people in a day, I don't think. So that was new for me. And, um, yeah, just starting fresh again, like at each new place, it was like, okay, let me get oriented to this pace, and then, okay, is anyone going to talk to me? Should I start with them? And then eventually you kind of get into a bit of a rhythm and people kind of know maybe maybe you'd like to be talked to. Um, and like at Boyle Street um, drop-in, it we had a, we were sitting at a table, and um, at first we didn't have anyone talking to us, and then all of a sudden it became like a revolving chair. There was one chair where it was like, one person sat down, talked to us for, for a bit, and then he left, and then someone else came. So, yeah, that was neat. But, um, but again, like, yeah, just that initial, okay, what am I, what's my first question? And I think that even goes back to what we were talking about on Friday night. That whole, like, okay, what, what is my question? Not necessarily what do you do. It's like, what, what are you doing today, maybe? Mm. Yeah. Just what have you been up to in the last few hours? Exactly, right. yeah. Yeah, what's kind of going on right now? And then overall, I mean, it, it's easy to feel hopeless, I guess, when you, sometimes when you hear people's stories or see their situations, but um, a lot of the, I mean, everyone in the group mentioned times that they saw hope and experienced hope. Um, and where mm -hmm. would you see, where would you say, sorry, that you saw hope this weekend? Um, yeah, I would say probably in just going forward and getting some plans in place, even if they're just for the day, you know, where am I going next? Um, just like knowing where you can go, um, having some friends to meet up with, that was big. Um... Yeah, that, that definitely says says hope to me. Um, I think many people mentioned they had kids mm -hmm. somewhere, and I didn't ask much more, but I think maybe just living for, for others maybe too and realizing that your life matters and um, maybe at some point you'll reconnect in some way with, with other family members. Um, yeah, that was, that impacted me, for sure. Um, just, we, we're not islands, right? We have, we have connections, we have networks. They have their own spheres, right? And we all, we all do, so seeing how those, those 
come together and yeah, connect. I went into this weekend wanting to increase my awareness of and appreciation for the lives of people experiencing homelessness. I came away being more aware of myself as well. I'm learning to change my body language in subtle ways, and I want to say hi to strangers more often. There was this sense of community in the inner city over the course of that February weekend that I haven't felt in a long time. People greeting one another, poking fun, enjoying the company of their neighbors. These people may not have houses, but they know how to be neighborly. They know how to start conversations with strangers like me, and I plan to keep on listening. That piece, entitled Inner City Immersion, was produced and edited by Karen Frazier. Broadcasting from CJSR FM 88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, you're listening to the CJSR edition. The idea of immersive journalism isn't such a new one. Even if you didn't know the term for it, you've probably read an article or two where the journalist is writing about the experience of doing or partaking in some extreme, outlandish activity. Think Hunter S. Thompson. His gonzo journalism is probably the most famous iteration of the immersive school of journalism. But the concept of immersion exists outside of the realm of journalism as well. Take, for example, Five Days for the Homeless. CJSR's producer, Roshni Nair, has more. You might have noticed a few bleary-eyed students donned in orange t-shirts in the business building last week. They might have come to your class asking for donations for youth homelessness. You might have also noticed several sleeping bags lined up neatly beside the tall evergreens of Art Squad. Well, for five nights last week, March 9th to the 13th, seven business students spent their nights outside, foregoing shelter, omitting luxuries from their lives like cell phones or showers, and relied completely on donations for food, all the while attending class. This in the name of raising awareness about youth homelessness in our city and raising money for YES, Youth Empowerment and Support Services, a city organization that provides shelter for youth on the streets. And the money they were attempting to raise was not chump change. So my name is Kira Kazveller. I am the Public Relations Director for the Five Days for the Homeless campaign on the University of Alberta campus. Our goal this year is actually $50,000, which is more than any group on the Alberta campus has ever raised for charity in history. So it's a pretty big ambitious goal, but I definitely think we can do it. 
Well, this could have been a relatively straightforward story about a group of highly competent, although sleep-deprived, business students who enthusiastically raised an enormous amount of money in a short period of time for an excellent cause. But here at CJSR, we tend to do things a little differently. Or at least try to. I started thinking about what made this particular event so successful. I mean, the University of Alberta is home to a number of student fundraising efforts. And at any given time on campus, there seems to be a variety of different bake sales, barbecues, popcorn machines, wafting, delicious buttery smells throughout the halls. My name is Roshni Nair. Join me for the next half hour as I try to pull back the curtains and delve into the psychology of charity. Maybe it's the idealism and energy of our youth that lead us to save the world one bake sale at a time. But fundraising on a limited student budget also affords the opportunity for creative campaigns. For example, you might have heard recently about a high school in Chicago that played Justin Bieber's baby over and over again on their school intercom, forcing people to donate until they had raised $1,000 for a struggling cafe art center down the street from the school. The campaign started on Monday and promptly ended on Wednesday, when seniors Charlotte Runzel and Jesse Schatz had irritated their classmates enough to donate $1,000 to stop the Bieber. Five Days for the Homeless started right here at the University of Alberta in 2005 by a group of business students. The first campaign was a little grassroots affair, sleep outside without any gear for five nights. It was a little bigger than a dare, but it highlighted youth homelessness. So my name is Alfonso Aguilar. I'm in my fourth year here at the School of Business Study and Finance, and I am the Director of Finance for Five Days for Homeless. And what day are we on today? We are on day number one. And how are you doing, Alfonso? So far, so good. Um, it, the first night, last night, was a little rough with the sleeping situation, but thankfully, So essentially right now we're sleeping uh, right in front of the School of Business. We are just uh, underneath a little roof from the, the second floor. We uh, set up a bit of a shelter. It's just about two to three layers of uh, cardboard laid out flat. Uh, it's a little uneven. It's, it's pretty hard. Uh, but I guess it'll get the job done for now. We, we kind of set up one wall to uh, some, some cardboard so that I guess gear is just the clothes on the 
stuff like that. But aside from uh, our clothes on our backs, the only other things we're allowed to have is a sleeping bag and, and a pillow. Um, so yeah, other than that, anything else we need, like uh, toothbrushes, toothpaste, like that had to be donated for us. Uh, any sort of food, uh, any sort of, I guess, It's an interesting experience, definitely. <laughs> it's a first time for me. Um, yeah, I think it, it gets a bit chilly, but the, the weather was really nice. It could have definitely been a lot worse. Um, it's just interesting as to just kind of being out in the open and just being vulnerable. There's no walls or roof over your head. So, um, yeah, just last night, <laughs> we just kind of we, when we went to bed, we, we hoped for the best. In the first year, Five Days raised $2,000, and the annual campaign grew every year, adding corporate sponsors, more money, and in 2008, other campuses across Canada started to participate in a national campaign. This year, over 22 campuses are participating in Five Days for the Homeless. One tiny little stunt to a national campaign. How? So I think there are reasons that are pretty straightforward, like sort of common sense reasons. I mean, and 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 real reasons um, that I think come to mind. So, for one thing, these kind of you said stunts, for example. Um, I think that they, you know, by nature of being kind of stunt-like, they attract more attention, which is which is good for the cause, good for getting attention. So to the cause, uh, as something worth thinking about contributing to, and then also for the f people raising the money, uh, perhaps it helps them raise more money if, if they're getting more attention, right? That was Professor Christopher Olivola from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. He studies the decision-making behind fundraising. I asked him why something like five days would be compelling. And you know, that's the thing with charitable giving, like anything else, uh, people have limited time, attention, and, and money to give, and so it's gotten so competitive, right, that, that charities have to um, duke it out to try to, 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 you know, convince people to give the money to them rather than the charity itself. So that, that's one way of doing it. So I think one thing, yeah, is attention. I think another thing it does is um, signal, for these the stunts that involve this kind of challenging, difficult uh, type of activities, um, you know, it, it signals because they're willing to do this, it signals um, uh, their interest uh, in the cause, right? So, you know, you can be, you know, more certain that they care about this cause if, if, if they're spending five days out, especially this time of year. <laughs> mm -hmm. but, but, the, but, yeah, I mean, I think those are the two kind of common sense ones. But the other one that, um, that, that I focused on is this kind of, psychological phenomenon we call the martyrdom effect. Um, that's the name we came up with, so it's not like, I don't know, it's not, it's not some kind of universal law, it's just a tendency that we, we observe. And what we find, and we find this in studies, experiments we've done, is that people uh, will contribute more to a charitable cause when either they themselves or their friend 
is going to suffer to raise money. So if, if people, when we find our experiments that people will, the willingness to donate is greater if they have to do something painful, like run a marathon or bike across the desert to raise money for a cause, than if they can raise the same money for the same cause doing something that's easy and enjoyable, like going to a picnic. Um, and we also find that they're willing to donate more to sponsor their friend if she's going to do something difficult to raise money than if she's, again, asking for the same, you know, donation to the same cause, but not going to suffer, right? So people seem to have this, they seem to, yeah, the willingness to donate is greater when either they, that their donations are associated with some kind of self-sacrifice or, or sacrifice or suffering, either on their part or their, so, and, and, and what we, critically what we show is that you get this if, phenomenon, this effect, even when you control for these other things that I mentioned, like signaling. To review, the martyrdom effect is when people contribute more to a charitable cause when they have to undergo or see a friend undergoing suffering or self-sacrifice in order to raise money. In fact, my first encounter with Five Days was in Montreal in 2011, when I spotted a friend of mine, let's call her Carrie, on Sherbrooke Street at the Roddick Gates of McGill University. She was completely disheveled and miserable on a cold, slushy day with a bright orange t-shirt on top of her parka, asking for change in an ice cream bucket. Now normally, Carrie was a heels and updo kind of lady. So this was rather startling. I felt sorry for her and tossed whatever change I had, probably a toonie, into her bucket. And those toonies certainly added up. Since 2005, the National Five Days for the Homeless campaign has raised $1.2 million. Maybe it's not all that surprising. After all, the Five Days campaign is run exclusively by business students. And the thing they're good at is raising capital. Total right now we're at 36,000. Um, we actually just uh, finished counting and I think we're just over 41,000 right now. So getting close to our um, goal. Right now we're at $44,000 and we're trying to get to $45,000. The last time we checked is at 55,000. Wow, so you beat 50 grand. Yeah, we did. We're really happy about it. National total this year was $191,000. Not too shabby. Uh, my name's Kyle Kuzik. I'm with Five Days for the Homeless. And what day are we on right now? We are on day number three, I think. Yeah, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, well, Wednesday, fourth day. It's been three nights, so. Okay. Do you think that this campaign would be the same if it was like a giant bake sale or something? Not at all. Okay. Um, giant bake sales are great because I love baking and I love food. Um, but you know what? It's, it's about the youth and it's about kind of just wrapping your mind around a little bit of what they go through. And... Um, and people see us out here and they wonder, what the heck are you guys doing and stuff? And it, 
people re- can relate to that, and it helps us relate to the youth a little bit more. Mm, Kyle was right. A bake sale would feel somewhat inappropriate. The type of fundraiser has to correlate somehow to the cause. Once again, Christopher Olivola of Carnegie Mellon University. Another thing that's going on that's related to this is we also find some evidence of this kind of congruity or congruence, sorry, between the type of cause and the type of fundraiser. So we get this martyrdom effect that is people giving more when they have to suffer or their friend is going to suffer when the cause involves human suffering. So people are going to give more uh, to like spend five days out in the cold uh, to raise money and awareness for homelessness then they will if these same people were going to have like a nice dinner in a warm setting um but you won't get this if they're raising money for like the orchestra right so they're going to spend five days out in the cold to raise money for the orchestra people are just being like well that's crazy that's um, i don't see the point so there is some kind of congruity of like you know experiencing something similar to what the the, the victims or the people you're trying to help. The cause affects the fundraising. This is probably why you don't see the girl guides, for example, going on hunger strikes to raise money. And by the way, if you're wondering, those cookies raise about $400 million in the United States every year. If they were receiving massages in the same area, like, uh, where are they set up? Are they uh, set up? Right outside the business building. Okay, so if, if they had set up, like, a massage booth outside the business building, and it was like, you know, we're getting massages, will you sponsor our <laughs> massages to raise money for that? And, you know, I'll tell you something, you laugh. Yeah. And it, it's really comical, like, massages for the homeless, that's just absurd. It just sounds completely wrong. But actually, from speaking of the business school, Right. One of the dominate, dominant theories in, in, in business and in many areas of social sciences is the sort of economic theory of rational choice. And the standard economic theory, the fact that people are choosing to suffer, to raise money, makes no sense. Right. Because, again, if, if, if running marathons cured cancer or stopped wars or, or, or solved uh, malnutrition, sure, but it doesn't. It neither does spending the night outside doesn't solve homelessness by itself. Um, so the fact that people are like, you know, from a standard economic point of view, if you care about your friend, you should prefer that she's getting a massage to raise, if she's going to raise the same money, so, so the same benefits are going to happen. Why not have her benefit and the, the, the homeless, right? But no, no, it seems people are like, no, no, that's not okay. It's only okay to give money if she's going to suffer, or if I'm going to suffer, right? And, and intuitively it seems right at first, but if you stop and think about it, there's something kind of comical about this, right? Yeah. So choosing to suffer is completely illogical from a rational choice perspective. But that suffering, that self-sacrifice, deserves a closer examination to understand the psychology of what this deprivation meant. I decided to ask someone undergoing a serious self-inflicted deprivation. CGSR News Director Matt Hergy. Yeah, so I don't know what it was, uh, what kind of resolution this was based around, uh, whether it be Lent or just self-improvement of some sort, but I've decided to give up coffee for, for a month and a bit. Right. And why? 
Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I started to realize a couple years ago, I guess, that I was just uh, using coffee as a bit of a crutch. Right. I was just drinking coffee because I, I, I fidget, I guess. I don't know. So I just felt like I should knock back some coffee. And then and a little while ago, I started cutting coffee with decaf coffee. Um, because I thought like, well, if I'm just if I'm just doing this to drink coffee, then I should at least not be so horrible on my body and consume massive amounts of caffeine. So I started cutting my coffee, and then I just realized a little while ago that oh, I wonder how I would feel if I just cut out coffee altogether. Right. But is your intention after the month and a bit to start drinking coffee again? Yeah, for sure, because I love it. Okay, so it's like this time-sensitive deprivation. Yeah, it's self-inflicted deprivation, for sure. And um, I can't remember the exact wording that you used, but I think you said self-improvement. I would say it's a little sadistic. Okay. Most societies, it's hard, I can't, I, it's hard for me to, I can't think of a single society that I've come across where, like, if you look at their, um, their heroes, sort of, in the classic texts or day-to-day, are often people who've, you know, endure some kind of, you know, difficult, challenging period or something in order to bring about, you know, so you look at, like, religion, for example, you know, um, you know, Jesus spent some time in the desert, he was crucified, Buddha gave up this like really nice, comfy, wealthy life, right, in order to reach enlightenment. Um, you look at, I mean, across all these religions and all these like heroism, you have this idea of like the, 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 the sort of model person, the, the hero is being someone who sacrifices themselves. And that's given a great amount of admiration. So I, I, to the point where I, I really I, I don't know of any culture societies where hero this kind of self-sacrifice heroism isn't given value for its own sake, like not independently of what it brings about. Like just people admire people who those who sacrifice something, yeah, um, independently of, of you know how positive their their efforts are, and just a way of of kind of building that self-control muscle, right? So I think there's that element to it too. Um, Another benefit is that after those 40 days, coffee's probably going to taste really good. Yeah, I think what it is is, for some people, I think the idea is that um, by living without, mm-hmm. you gain a, bre- a better appreciation for uh, those people who uh, can't have. Right. Yeah. Okay. I, I guess that's... But... Does coffee actually like? Is anybody living without coffee? Does anybody? Does anybody really want? Really would lo- love a cup of coffee and just can't have it? Well, I think that's why it's interesting because um, it allows you to self-define what the most important thing is that you can't live without, but is also kind of convenient, right? And maybe, maybe one of the benefits. Who knows of these business students doing this is they'll come to appreciate how difficult homelessness is, how much of an issue it is, 
but also how much they're lucky to have uh, the comfort or security of a home that they can go to, right? My name is Kyle Goff. Uh, I'm the Edmonton local chair for this year's Five Days for the Homeless campaign. And what day are we on today? And this is our final day. Yeah, and so the sleeping part of it, it was an interesting interesting aspect to it. It definitely made the campaign unique, and it also did give us an understanding of what it's like to be in that situation because when we would have to go to classes and do all the work in the day that we would normally do on top of the campaign, and we were all exhausted and obviously smelt bad and, and couldn't really sit next to some of our friends because they were like, oh my gosh, you smell terrible. Like, to know that, that just that point of exhaustion that a lot of people that live on the streets probably feel on a day-to-day -day basis and we only deal with it for five days but there's those kids that were out there last week you know in the minus 30 minus 40 and they're sleeping out there and then had to deal with that the next day as they went about their stuff that was very eye-opening for all of us I think but being able to give up to choose when precisely to be homeless is a privilege too Okay, my name is Ilham Jawaji. I'm in second year of university and I'm the marketing and media director of Five Days for the Homeless. How about um, you personally? How has this experience changed your, uh, I guess, understanding of youth homelessness? It's been a very eye-opening experience because even going into, um, in, into my position, I knew like about youth homelessness, I knew I wanted to help, but actually going to YES and interacting with actual youth at risk, that's very much um, changed my perspective. And how about sleeping outside? Uh, definitely changed my perspective, especially knowing that we had such good weather this week. It really makes me grateful that I'm able to choose, that I was able to have this week, and then we weren't outside last week. The homelessness of five days is public quite unlike the real student homelessness on the University of Alberta campus. They're the ones couch surfing at their friends' homes, moving place to place, all the while attending high school or university. They're the students pulling an all-nighter in sub, which is open 24 hours a day. No big deal, except this particular all-nighter stretches over weeks, months. Or that graduate student, that has just enough money to cover tuition, but quietly uses their office space as their home, staying way past study hours because they have no other option. How does a group of very privileged business students undergoing momentary hardship for a good cause compare to youth actually struggling on the streets? It, it's so different for us than it is for homeless youth and it, it's more so of a demonstration as um, like we're, we're trying to empathize but it, it's hard to because we're still accepted everywhere and no one turns a blind eye to us. Um, we kind of stand out and people are interested in what we're doing and stuff which is, the, which is great because then we can share the message with them. Um, so we, gotta, we, we try and use it as a tool. Um, It'd be nice if we could really empathize more so with the homeless youth, but um, right now I feel like it's more of a tool um, to kind of allow us to open up those conversations with people and get the message out there that this is a problem in our city and this is a problem we can address quite, um, not simply, but that should be addressed and we can do it together. And I think a lot of people, and myself included, at first share that intuition that like, if they're not there, uh, hanging out, like, uh, in, you know, talking to, working with, or 
helping homeless people directly, then it's kind of very superficial. But, but it depends if you frame the morality in terms of the means, yeah. how they're doing it, or the ends, what they're achieving. And my, as, as my view is that there should be more focus on what they're achieving, so the, the, the consequences are. Are they helping as many people as they can in the best way possible? And that for me, that matters more than how they're doing it. And yes, could certainly use the money. The youth empowerment and support services faced severe funding cuts in the past year. The over 55 grand raised by five days for the homeless is definitely going to help them. But I think it's a, it's a very basic human tendency, for whatever reason it's what I'm trying to study, is we, we tend to evaluate, we tend to focus a lot on the means, and, and self-sacrifice is something we give a lot of um, value to. Students lead busy lives, and yet the plethora of fundraising efforts that students undertake on campus, all the money raised, all the countless hours students donate to various causes and charities, all that popcorn distributed and eaten, <laughs> is impressive. As for five days, finding sponsors, organizing an aggressive media and fundraising strategy is pretty time-consuming. I mean, it takes a lot of effort to pretend to be homeless. And being real homeless, trying to find a place to live while managing a full course load, finding food, working a part-time job, that's a lot of effort, too. Five days punctures our own bubble of privilege makes us question what our own lives would be like without shelter. For staging a thought-provoking public demonstration and running a highly successful fundraising campaign, I think these students should be commended. And for all you other fundraising campaigns out there on the U Alberta campus, try adding a little self-sacrifice if it ties in with your cause. It might do wonders. Thank you and congratulations to the participants of Five Days for the Homeless. For more information, check out fivedays.ca. Thanks to Professor Christopher Olivola from the Tupper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon University for his insight on the science of charity. And finally, thank you to Matt Hergy, the CGSR News Director, for allowing me to pick his brain about self-sacrifice. For CGSR News, I'm Roshni Nair. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the CJSR Edition. Thanks for tuning in. I've been your host, Matt Hergy. Special thanks today to Linda Duncan, as well as CJSR producers Roshni Nair and Karen Frazier. The CJSR Edition is a spoken word project of CJSR FM 88.5. Local, community, public radio from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. 
If you'd like more information about this series or any of the other spoken word programming that you hear on CJSR, why not head on over to our website, cjsrnews.com. If you have any thoughts or feedback about the show, you can email news at cjsr.com. So until next time, thanks for tuning in to the CJSR edition.